Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. It's one of the most important pillars of mental health, especially for those who need regulation for their dysregulation. Derek Zanetti is the guitarist vocalist of the Homeless Gospel Choir, formerly a one-person band, now a band band. Derek lives with bipolar and has much to consider when he hits the road to tour. First, how to keep a routine in an environment that can throw all kinds of curveballs. The skills and tools he uses at home to stay well. Can he practice them on the road? And then it's home again and crash, depression. Tour, home, tour, home, rinse and repeat. Over the years, Derek has gotten better at managing his mood episodes, at home and on the road. Sometimes that means packing it in early after a show to get some much-needed sleep. Sometimes it means spinning on his heels and walking away from stressful situations. Oh, and for Derek, sobriety is huge. Does he still struggle with the punk musician lifestyle? Of course he does. But he's always striving for wellness, and he's doing what he loves, sharing his music with other people. Hey everybody, my name is Derek Zanetti. I play in a punk rock band called the Homeless Gospel Choir. And originally it was just me on acoustic guitar playing out of Pittsburgh where I grew up and I lived for most of my life. And about a year ago, I moved away to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is sick. It's among the Amish and I do like that pretty good. It's nice and quiet. And we have an ice cream truck in our neighborhood, which is super duper sick. There's five of us in our band. It's it's the best. I would suggest to anybody, if you ever have wiggles and you have to get your wiggles out or, you know, maybe you're upset with what you see on the television and how you see politicians treating people and bosses treating people and people treating people and you want to say something about it, go ahead and start yourself a punk rock band. You can never be too old. You can never be too young. There's no qualifications for it. You can have pink and purple hair. You can wear shoes or not wear shoes. Punk rock's for everybody. So if you ever have the wiggles and you really need to go ahead and get your wiggles out, start a punk rock band. It's the best therapy. When I was little, my dad would sometimes behave irrationally and he would sometimes behave in a way that was unpredictable and sometimes mean. 
And we would call my dad. We would say when he was acting that way, we'd say, dad, you're being bipolar because we didn't know what it meant. And it wasn't until years later that we found out that that is something that people can have and that people live with and that people deal with and that people can get treated for. I changed my vocabulary from using it as a word to say, someone's acting crazy, to this is a thing that affects us and uh, what our responsibility is. It's not our fault. Mental illness is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And we do have a duty and a responsibility to make sure that we're uh, doing the best that we can to make sure that we're showing up to life the best. It took me a long time to have the courage to ask for help. And it took me a long time to have the courage to admit that there was something not right inside of my mind. And with encouragement from my close friends and from my family and from my partner, I went ahead and I began to go get help and began to go see a therapist and began to go seek treatment. Bipolar is really hard to describe to people in my experience. I've been diagnosed now for four years and still learning how to explain it. But the one analogy I feel helps is this idea of eating an orange. So when you're feeling manic, everything is amazing. So the orange tastes like the best orange you've ever tasted. The crispness, the flavor, oh my God, is it so good. And then of course, when I shift into depression, that's a disgusting orange. It's dry, it's flavorless. And I think people understand that. But in your experience, how have you been able to explain to people what you're dealing with, what you're going through? Sometimes I'm able to find clips of a song or clips of a video or a picture of something that I have either seen in my mind or that I've heard in my mind. It's been the best way that I've been able to communicate, especially to mental health professionals, whenever I've had appointments and I've been able to say, this is what's going on inside my mind. This is the closest thing I can imagine to it. And it's this picture of a groundhog chewing through a metal fence. In my mind, when I'm starting to lose it, I can always see this groundhog inside my mind, just like ripping through a metal fence and the noise of the metal scraping and the noise of the teeth chewing through the, the wood and the metal and the ground. Like that's how I feel inside my mind. And I said, and whenever I get to be super afraid and I know that I'm in a really bad place, sometimes I do feel bulletproof and I feel like I'm Jesus Christ. And I feel like I'm going to do something that's supernatural, like walk on water or fly it's scary. It's a scary thing to make your family go through that. It's not fun. It's not a thing that you celebrate. And then sometimes you feel so low that no one would ever love you, that there's no way that you could ever be good, that there's nothing good inside of you. And the only thing that you're capable of is loneliness and ugliness. And that's the only good that you'll ever be. And then sometimes whenever you feel super duper afraid, you don't know the difference between whether you're walking on water or you're the devil. And that's the scariest place for me to be. They say, as the bipolar community, how do we celebrate our yada, yada, yada? I don't know if you've ever had a manic episode before, but there's nothing to celebrate for me. It's not fun. And it certainly isn't a thing that I like to think about. And if I can avoid it for as long as I possibly can to think about the last time that I behaved that way. Now I have a really good protocol in place whenever I start to feel my mood swing or my confidence dip or soar. There's certain ticks that I have or certain tells that I will allow to happen when I start to feel like I'm going off the rails on a crazy train like Ozzy Osbourne. 
<laughs> I have good people in my life now that I'm able to call and that I have I have a good protocol around myself to whenever I want to yield to bad behavior, I know how to get out of it. Where before I didn't have those tools and I didn't know what questions to ask myself. Is this how I want to be behaving? Is this how I want to be thought of? Is this how I like to be remembered? Am I doing something wise with my money? When I feel myself start to go into a place where I feel like I'm out of control, I just had somebody explain to me the language of safety protocol. When you start to feel like you're going to make bad decisions, give your partner your credit card and your debit card so you're not out buying Mario Lemieux rookie cards on eBay so that I'm not buying 150 pounds of beef jerky at three o'clock in the morning because I think the world's ending. You know, there's just certain things that I now do. If I'm going to make bad decisions, I have people in place to help me now. You talked about the bipolar community. And the interesting thing is that we all go through such different things, but at the same time, we all have such commonalities. You yeah. mentioned the hamster gnawing at the metal. And for me, it's a hornet's nest. I've had that same dream myself, totally. From what I've seen with the support group that I'm involved with, people can identify with these things, but at the same time, no one's inside anybody else's head. So whether you're having manic episodes, psychotic episodes, just brutal depression for months at a time, we're all going through such different experiences, yet here you are, you and I, talking the same language. Mm -hmm. I guess the biggest key to the puzzle for me and what I think it is when I talk to other people if someone's going through some shit, I believe you, man. I believe you. I know it must be tough in there. I don't know exactly what you're feeling in there, Jason. I can't tell you word for word what's going on inside your head, but I believe you. I believe you when me, when you tell me that you're feeling this way. It takes a lot of guts and it's super duper scary to especially admit that you don't feel you're in control of your own thoughts. That's a scary place to be, to think that like, there's physical manifestations of what's going on in your mind and it's dangerous and it's unsavory at very best. There's so many amazing and wonderful resources. You're not alone and there's plenty of places and people who are trained. I'm not trained to know what goes on inside my mind. I'm just an idiot who plays guitar. I can't say, but there are professional people who studied this with their lives that know how to navigate the strange and the weird and the dark and the darn right scary things that are going on inside your mind. And I think if you can let a little bit of trust in there to make yourself vulnerable to another person to seek that help, for me, that's when I was at my best. When I'm at my best, I'm going to therapy. When I'm at my best, I'm drinking my water and taking my vitamins and brushing my teeth and sticking to my routine and keeping a schedule. When I'm doing my best, I'm checking in with my people. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm making the calls that I need to. I'm sitting down with my partner. How are you doing? Really, how are you doing? Not just I'm okay. I got other shit I got to do. How are you really, 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 really doing? And having those sometimes difficult conversations because I'm a people pleaser. I want you to love me. And if every time we get together, I'm telling you how bummed out I am or how sad I feel. I don't want our relationship every time you and I talk, Jason. Oh, here goes Derek. He's going to tell you that he's having a war inside of us again. And then I'm a bummer to my friend Jason. And I don't want to do that. I want you to feel blessed whenever you talk to me. I want you to think that I'm the funniest and the best. But I think sometimes whenever we're at a low place, we do hide away from folks because we don't want people to see us behaving that way, which is why I was talking to you about going in the McDonald's parking lot and like crying by myself. I don't want anybody to see me like this. I don't want anybody to see me sweating, sweating bullets, 
eating cheeseburgers in the McDonald's parking lot, wishing I was dead. I don't want anybody. I don't want to tell anybody that that's how I'm feeling. In my worst moments, I choose not to tell anybody. One of the things that I wished I knew a long time ago, well, pretty much my whole life, is these things are symptoms. So if I'm out spending money or I'm out doing unsavory things or hurting people, hurting myself, those are symptoms of bipolar. And if you can recognize that they're symptoms, then you can cut it off at the neck a little bit. Sure. Like you said, if you're starting to feel wild and furious inside of your head, you know, you can let that roll. And next thing you know, you're doing whatever wild thing. Whereas if you can cut it off and say, wait a second, whenever I feel like this in my head, I know that I'm trending towards mania. So how do I pull back the reins? Mr. Rogers had a great program up in Canada for a really long time before he came to the United States, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood of Canadian broadcasting. He always tells us that it's a good thing to know when you're about to do something bad and you can stop. And even though that message is designed for five and six and seven-year-olds, that message is designed for me right now as a 39-year-old to know that it's good, that if there's something in your mind that's wrong that you've planned to do, if you're in the middle of doing something and you don't like the way that you're acting or you don't like the way that you're behaving, you can stop and you can choose to do a different thing. And sometimes it's just as simple as me being able to hear those words. I'm a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood stan. I think he's one of the best human beings who ever lived next to Martin Luther King and Jesus Christ and the Easter Bunny. I think he's up there all the way. The example that he said about what it means to be patient, and I've just been able to take some of his teachings that he has on his albums and that he's had from his shows about being proud of yourself and giving yourself credit when you've done something good and not being so hard on yourself when you've made poor choices and the importance of having family and friends close and things like that. And just the little teeny lessons that he teaches really has bore witness with me and, and have made my whole experience of wrestling with mental health more bearable. You've talked a lot about being on the road and how that was affecting your mental health, your mood cycles. Can you take me back to that time where you were having a really tough time managing touring? Yeah. We were on tour in California. We were doing great. There was no reason for me to worry. We were playing killer shows. A bunch of the shows were sold out. There were a ton of kids there loving, singing along the whole bit. And we're in San Jose. I walked into the house with my blanket and my pillow, knowing that we were staying in a place where I was unfamiliar. I saw people that I didn't know, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't make myself do it. I couldn't make myself go into the house and sleep anywhere. It's kind of like whenever you watch a video game and the runner can't get over the one hurdle. No matter what you do, the runner just keeps running into the wall. That was me in doing it. I was so moody. I just like, I'm sleeping in the fucking van. In my mind, I was there was a war going on. My friends came out. Hey, are you okay? I was like, I just can't be around people right now. I need to just be in the van by myself. And I slept in the van. And that's from being out on the road for weeks at a time not drinking water and not remembering to do my regular routine and having enough unfamiliar things happen to make me feel uncomfortable. I wasn't mean to our hosts or to anybody. I wasn't, I didn't harm anybody, but I knew at that moment that if I was going to be around people, I was having a hard time controlling my negative feelings. So I needed to go ahead and remove myself. The only place to go was in the van. And there was a super cool setup. I'm sure there were cool people in there playing Mario Kart, <laughs> eating pizza and doing all the things that you want to do. 
And, you know, sometimes on tour, I do a great job. Sometimes I'm up, I do my morning meditation and I'm drinking my water and I'm chipper as can be. And then two or three days of not being in my routine, not having a parking spot right in front of the venue, something super duper small. That's just like, okay, we'll just have to park around the block. No worries. You know, so sometimes I do good. Sometimes I do shit. Someone out of a group the other night asked the group, is there such a thing as bipolar rage? (laughs) And we all just kind of nodded and yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. When you started to do the routines and doing the right things you mentioned on the road, how did you see the change? I wasn't doing it on the road as much. I was mostly just doing it in home in a safe, controlled environment. I wasn't touring that whole much whenever I first started to get on, get onto it. And I was doing art therapy at the time too. And I was in my house and when I would go on tour, it would just be for shorter lengths of time, or it would be in a super, like I did a tour with Frank Turner and I was in his big old bus. So I didn't have any worries. I woke up, I was on the bus. I didn't have to think about anything. I didn't have any logistics. When it was time for me to play, I plugged my guitar into the PA system. I played in front of like thousands of people. I unplugged my guitar and then I went back and sold t-shirts or whatever. So like my stress level was completely, I didn't have to go ahead and troubleshoot anything. If a plan doesn't work out in the way that it's supposed to, that's another hurdle that I have. If I have an idea in my mind about a way that something should be going and it turns out that something, everything else could be going absolutely perfect and to plan. But the one little thing that's just a slight hair out of place is the only thing I can focus on. And I get obsessive about it. And that's another thing. I haven't done a lot of touring. I've done just a little bit. And I know that for me, it was the environment was such that, and not just the environment, but the actual energy levels of it and putting yourself up and performing led me to escalate. But then also that woof of depression after the show. Mm -hmm. Were you experiencing something like that? I don't know if that has anything to do with mental illness or it just has to do with the excitement of things happening. I'm trying my best to be able to distinguish the difference between feeling just regular sadness and what it means to slip into a manic experience. We live in a sad world as of recent. I think it's okay to pause and feel sad. It's healthy for us to feel sad. I didn't know if if I was able to ever tell the difference between what it was like to be sad and what it was like to feel depressed. And I think through therapy and I think through self-reflection and being honest with myself, I've been able to distinguish the difference between the two. And not every time I feel sad, am I about to experience mania or am I going through some like really bad swirl. Some things are just sad and it's okay to feel those feelings too. Transforming into a person that can say, okay, this is my mental health condition and this is a normal feeling of being sad. Mm -hmm. This is a normal feeling of being excited. And again, I believe it's symptoms-based. The symptom could be going out of control. It's really cool and interesting that you're able to parse that out. A lot of folks have a really hard time with that and it can keep them in dangerous situations or places where they're unwell. Did you notice when that first started to happen or how do you feel you got to that place of being able to distinguish? I think I was feeling it all the time. I think it had to do with the fact that I was staring at my phone a lot. Your cell phone's just a breeding ground for sadness. There's trauma happening all over the world all the time. And to be connected to everybody in the world all the time, sure, there's birthdays and honeymoons and weddings and you know, your nephew's hitting a home run in Little League and and everything is hunky-dory in some ways, being on vacation, you know, whatever. But then the sad parts of it too are just as prevalent. And 
I think I've, I noticed that even whenever I wasn't in a way of feeling depressed, that I was fine. I was, I was functioning well. I was following my checklist and protocol and I would see something that was said and I'm like, oh man, that's super sad. I don't have any power or control over it. I can feel sad about it. I think the difference between depression and sadness is I'm able to move on from the sadness pretty quickly. Not that I'm not empathetic towards people who have suffered in a, in a natural disaster in Honduras or Japan or anything like that, but it's not anything that I could possibly be in control of or to dwell on. And the depression type of sadness is you dwell on it and then you start to feel regret. And then you're like, maybe I could have been a better son and my dad would have wanted to spend time with me or, you know, things that you're completely out of control. And, and then you start to spiral into like this super negative way. And for me, I've just found ways to be able to compartmentalize those different types of sadness. I'm not good at it because sometimes the regular sadness will just bite you on the ass and put you down in the swirl anyway. But sometimes I am able to. The distorted thinking as well. Something happens and I can dwell on things. And what you just said about it spiraling into larger regrets or things that happened in the past, man, that just gave me chills because that's exactly what happens to me. It could swirl into, oh my God, why did I do that thing to my mom 15 years ago that she doesn't remember, <laughs> you know, and I'm devastated by it and dwelling on it. For instance, my grandfather died recently. I'm sorry, Jason. Yeah, it was very sad. But it didn't turn into a full-on, like, oh, my God, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I spend this time with him? I'm such an idiot for doing this thing with him 20 years ago. Like, that's the spiraling of depression. So I was pretty proud that I was able to say, okay, this sucks, and I'm super sad. But it doesn't have to lead into a depression. And bipolar depression is, well, generalized depression, bipolar depression are kind of the same. It can get really dark, and it can really drag. It's not just the situational depression that could last and go away after six months after someone's death. This is like a full-on lifelong depressive episode that can happen anywhere from three, four times a month to once a year. So I've had different regularities of it. I think whenever I first started talking about it more often, I had been experiencing it more regularly because I was also wrapped in addiction and I was having issues with that too that were being uncared for. And, and I was turning to that for a coping mechanism. When it comes to like that type of regret stuff, I know that substance abuse often comes hand in hand with folks who struggle with mental illness. And anybody who's ever been at the absolute bottom of the barrel knows that it's not a savory thing to talk about or to want to bring up or not a shining pillar of pride in your life that you want to continually recall. I have a very soft spot in my heart for people who struggle with addiction and with people who are mentally ill and struggle with addiction because I, once you've stolen from your own mother, you know, once you've stolen and lied to your friends, once you've hidden it so much that you don't know if anybody will ever trust you, it's a super lonely place to be at. And if you don't know if anybody likes you, you don't know if anybody wants you to get better. I was very, very fortunate and very, very blessed to have some people who really, really love me and really look after me and, and cared for me. It was a family and it was a community that I desperately needed at the time that were supportive of me getting sober and were supportive of me going to go ahead and get help. They told me that they loved me anyway. To know that my mom loves me anyway, she loves me anyway, even though she knows she loves me anyway. And that was, that was a good feeling. And that was a boost that I think that I needed to, to go ahead and get the help. How did the punk scene support or not support you through all that? Well, both. I received both support and resistance. 
not resistance to go get help, mental health, but punk rock doesn't really facilitate for people desiring soberly. Like every show, there's dollar PBR nights and you go down the fest and it's just, they're filling swimming pools filled with beer and everything's just like a, a big, huge party all the time. I think that's cool. I don't need that. I want to experience art and culture together and have a, a punk rock show where everybody feels safe and welcome. And then after that, I like to have a cup of tea and maybe play a couple rounds of Yahtzee at my friend's house and then go to bed. I'm not out for the big, huge, loud shebang all the time. Some people in my band do get frustrated with me because right after the show, I want to leave. I want to get in the van. I want to get to where we're staying so that I can start to wind down so that I can prepare for the next day of things that I need to do. In some ways, punk rock isn't, but in many ways, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many emails and handwritten letters I received in the mail and favorite punk rock bands and singers whenever they would just check in on me, like people that I looked up to my entire life going and saying, hey, man, I know what it feels like. And I just want you to know that I'm fucking with you, buddy. If there's anything you need, this is my cell phone number. You can holler at me anytime. Brooke Pridemore took me to my first sobriety meeting in Pittsburgh when they happened to be on town on tours. Like, hey, we're going to go to an AA meeting, see if it works out for you, if it's something that you like. And I just had friends who like unashamedly and unabashedly wanted to love me and wanted to help me because they knew that I was good. They knew that there was good inside my heart and they knew that mental health mixed with addiction is a fucking cocktail for disaster. And they just wanted to push me in the direction where I could do better. And I was just super lucky to have like a good crew of folks around me that love me and that wanted the best for me. I'm humbled by it. I'm utterly humbled by it. I can't express my thanks enough. The golden question <laughs> with a lot of folks with mental health conditions. And in this case, I'm thinking of bipolar because I've been asked this question as well, but is it a blessing or is it a curse or somewhere in between? It's a curse. I'd give it away in a heartbeat. If I could never write another song ever again, if I could trade in anything to not have it, I would. Aside from like my marriage or aside from like a family member, I would trade in any amount of tattoos, any amount of punk rock touring, the amount of energy and work and sacrifice and suffering to just be alive at 39 years old. I can only imagine what I could have been capable of not having like this giant boulder in my life. I've met friends because of it. I don't want to say it's been literal shit the whole time. Man, I think about, I think about, I'm an ambitious person and I think about all the things that I want to accomplish and everything that I want to go after and books that I want to write and tours that I want to go on and puppet shows that I want to put on and weird art installs that I want to do and poetry that I want to recite. And I think about all the amount of hours I sat in my house absolutely riddled with nerves and absolutely just twisted and torn up at four o'clock in the morning, not knowing if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die, if my neighbors are listening in on me. I mean, I've had crazy psychotic shit where I thought my neighbors were, no kidding, that they, they were filming me. They were filming me from my windows and that they were listening into my phone call conversations and I was losing my fucking mind. If I could trade those experiences for anything, I would. And you've got your band and your music despite all that. Yeah. Pretty amazing. It's a lot of dumb luck to be truthful with. Yeah, that I kind of <laughs> fell ass backwards into. I just, I'm fortunate that I have great friends who love me and that I have a good support system. And everybody from anybody who's ever put out my records to people who've helped me with management to booking agents, everybody is in it with me too. They love me and they want me to do the best because they believe in me and they believe in this band too. And um, I'm super thankful to have people that want to champion 
me and, and want me to do good. It feels good and I feel loved because of it. That was my conversation with Derek Zanetti of the Homeless Gospel Choir, thehomelessgospelchoir.com. I now have a Tee Public store where you can buy Scream Therapy merch. So head over to screamtherapyhq.com, support the podcast, and get some fancy new duds. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. I'm coming to you from Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Klahoman Nation. Doing this podcast and talking to other folks living with mental health challenges has been a huge part of my journey. It means the world to me that you're out there listening. You can sign up for my newsletter and find more episodes at ScreamTherapyHQ.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's talk punk and mental health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, take care and be well. Be well.